Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Just a reminder, if you've yet to sign up for my newsletter, please do so at jasonpereira.ca. On today's show. Today I have Dan Donnelly, CEO of C-Currency. C-Currency is a blockchain-enabled tokenization platform that has baked compliance right into the actual token. So not only does the token represent the underlying asset, but it simultaneously has rule sets around who can participate, what the issuance policies are, what government regulations get into place, and it's basically baked in the entire rule set into the currency itself. So very interesting, fascinating conversation. So I hope you enjoy that. And here's my conversation with Dan Don. Greetings, Dan. Hey, Jason. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Really my pleasure. So Dan Doney, CEO of C-Currency. Tell us about C-Currency. C-Currency is a blockchain-based financial service infrastructure company. We emphasize specifically compliance and interoperability. And one of our hallmark components is the ability to link existing financial service networks to the blockchain space. And again, through the use of advanced compliance tools and our compliance-aware token framework. So this allows the compliance-aware token framework is definitely a differentiator. If you're not familiar with the concept, um, we're able to produce tokens of any type. In one use case, we are producing tokens that represent shares in an exchange-traded fund. But those tokens can have regulatory rules that they're capable of enforcing complex international financial services regulations so that the tokens know what they're allowed to do. And they only allow themselves to participate in transactions between known and qualified parties, regardless of the type of instruments, whether it's an exempt security, a publicly traded instrument, cash, crypto, et cetera. So basically, to sum it up, it's imagine if we were back in the day where we were still using certificates to, um, to denote ownership of things, that certificate would actually have intelligence that would basically allow it to transact in only ways that are authorized. Very cool. So uh, before we That's get into- That's a good summary, Jason. I like that. <laughs> Smart paper, only it's uh, tokens. Okay. So before we get there, get back to that, let's talk about the history of the currency. So what led to its founding? What was the underlying thinking? What was the problem that you solve? Yeah, so I actually um, came, I was working at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, I was a chief innovation officer there and had a responsibility to track advanced technologies in all sectors and bring them into mission use. One of the the challenges that we faced at that time is there was a a lot of illegal movement of value on blockchain networks. Mm -hmm. So we, in 2012, uh, were looking at chain analysis tools and techniques so that we could track and identify the bad guys who were using those networks. And in 2012, almost every blockchain transaction was between um, parties who were engaged in some kind of questionable behavior. So it was just a matter of figuring not out which ones- Not all of us were transacting in questionable behavior, but continue. <laughs> so, so not all, but I'll tell you the percentages were pretty high. And now again, there's low grade things and then there's human trafficking and weapons yeah. trafficking and drug trafficking. And, and these things do uh, attract the attention of, of folks. And so what I saw in blockchain is the a actually marvelous tool for engaging in international commerce, one in which you could trace all the transactions and you could easily identify it, stuck out like a sore thumb, folks engaged in ransomware and other nefarious activity. So you had a beautiful tool from a, a regulatory perspective but it was just missing identity and there weren't effective gates. And, and uh, the other observation that I made in that time frame was there was no stable value. So certainly Bitcoin around was uh, an explosive growth. And then with Mt. Gox, it, it collapsed down and then again, explosive growth. But there was no reliable investment thesis. So you were you had volatility in the marketplace. And so I saw an opportunity in 2015 
to do a couple of things. The first was to introduce instruments that were stable. So income producing instruments, I was interested in commercial real estate leases mm-hmm. and securitization of those leases to produce dividend paying currencies um, that could be that had the benefits of a security, but were freely traded as currencies. That's where the name security actually comes from. But you know, quickly I ran into the fact and I couldn't deny the fact that they were securities. And I saw that not as a bad thing, but a good thing. So what we needed to build out was the compliance framework that went along with the power of having instruments that could trade freely and had these other great characteristics. So I built the tokenization platform working while I was still working in government in the evening. And I was able to tokenize assets uh, within just a couple months. Tokenization, as it turns out, is an easy thing to do. Compliant tokenization is not. So I was on a roll. I had produced <laughs> a number of, of different tokens. And I thought, well, it'll take me about six months to build the compliance framework into this that allows us to transact globally. I was off by almost four years. It, it took quite a bit longer <laughs> to actually build a framework that allows us to respect and enforce global securities regulations. And it's not just securities regulations, it's money transmitter, other banking regulations that apply when you have an instrument that can be traded, used for payments, but also has security characteristics. Turns out you're touching just about every regulatory framework that exists. And again, for good reason, those rules are there for uh, the right reasons. So we had to build a flexible framework that allowed us to, and again, the other just absolute truth about blockchain is it does allow for international transactions. So you have to be able to enforce policy at an international level. So we patented a, a, a concept that I think becomes the centerpiece of the future of finance in our compliance aware token framework. It's a mechanism that allows you to flexibly generate regulations in a nice, easy user interface. So you can basically drag and drop rule sets so that even a lawyer or a regulator can easily see the regulatory frameworks. So you can combine regulatory frameworks from different countries and share them. These are recipes. They can be attached to a token and then they enforce the behavior associated with that token. So you get a repeatable mechanism by which you can enforce, again, global securities regulations. One of the cool things, of course, is that regulations update and so do these rule sets. So you're able to change them and update uh, the behavior of the tokens in real time. So when we saw that, we had gone to that point, we were investing heavily in this in 2015, 2016. No one thought this was an important problem. Um, and then, <laughs> okay, so that where where were they coming from, or what what could they not understand about the fact that wait a sec, you have two separate systems, you have the security and you have compliance overlay. Wouldn't it be nice if these things were actually one and the same? Like who like I hear this, and I think brilliant idea. Who thought that this wasn't important? <laughs> every venture capitalist and everyone who was in the, v, the crypto space at the time. So that was the beginning of the ICO craze. Well, the crypto space, I kind of get. The VCs, I'm a little bit disappointed, but continue. Yeah, so look, what they were seeing was a lot of behavior in the the blockchain space, the whole ICO craze. They were caught up in messages that seemed to to think that, you know what, maybe regulators don't really care about these things. And so why would you invest in something that they don't seem to be taking any action on? And then mid-2017, when the regulators, yes, Chairman Clayton, fired a shot across the bow of the crypto industry, it became clear that this was an important problem. But it turns out it's not an easy problem to solve. And the the next step for the crypto world was to do whitelists. Whitelists are historically not a scalable model. They don't deal with the complexity of securities regulations. So those efforts have, despite a lot of investment and a lot of uh, attention from other participants in the space, 
they've proven to be limited. So then those folks went and built their own private ledgers. And of course, private ledgers are no better than the OTC markets of old. Hmm. So here the industry is gone and invested a lot of time and attention on exactly the wrong solution. What you want is a global venue where the instrument itself knows what the rules are and it's able to enforce the rules without boundaries, or at least the only boundary is the regulatory framework that applies for the instrument and any participants in the trade. And when you recognize that you might have one instrument, let's just say from Singapore, being traded for another instrument, domiciled or issued from the UK, being traded between a party who is in the UAE to another party who's in the US. You are implicating four different regulatory frameworks in that transaction. It requires real-time policy enforcement and interpretation to make that transaction occur. And we've got a marvelous and exquisite model to do this. The implications when you can do that are massive because it allows transactions truly at global scale. One factor to keep in mind to give you a sense of the significance, banks send, spend $240 billion a year on compliance. We've largely automated most many aspects of the compliance function through this, this model. So it's, it allows you to perform banking functions, I should say finance functions, at a scale, at a cost point that, that they simply cannot compete with. And that's why we think we're now in a very exciting space oh, as the I mean, world has recognized the importance. It's interesting. We're hitting on a number of kind of almost themes we keep on hitting on regularly on this show. One is the promise of blockchain and all the different applications that could act, that it could play, which frankly, guys like you are actually starting to deliver on. Secondly, is the um, securitization of just about anything utilizing these things. And lastly, is the compliance piece. Like we haven't done too many compliance shows thus far. But in the ones that we have, I have done, uh, you know, the running joke is that the only growth industry is really in, in finance has been has been compliance. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the compliance burden keeps on growing at a rate faster than they can add bodies. So without solutions like yours, the scalability of fixing problems like this is just not feasible, quite honestly, and it's just going to crush us in costs. So good on you for doing it. I also find it amusing that as usual, people look at a problem and say, oh, that's not that hard. And then four years later, you realize why it was that hard. Uh, <laughs> so you know what, if, if it wasn't for, let's call it uh, benign ignorance, you never would have started it and you never would have finished it. So good on you. That's absolutely right. If I had known how hard it was going to be, there is no way I would have embarked on this journey. But yeah, now on the other side of this, of course, we've got some real exciting things happening. And so I'm, I'm sure I want to talk a little bit about the Wisdom Tree investment in us and the, the set of offerings they're bringing into the market, which is really transformational for the blockchain space mm-hmm. because no such instruments exist. So let's and talk about so those we, instruments in particular. Tell me what you've yep, done. Yeah. Well, we're in the process of uh, they're starting the regulatory approval process associated mm-hmm. with this. We're not seeing any obstacles, but that is a, that is a thorough process. So mm-hmm. let me not overplay my hand here. But um, what we're looking to to bring into the market are tokenized versions of their exchange-traded funds. Now, uh, WisdomTree is one of the largest exchange-traded fund providers, the largest independent exchange-traded fund provider in the world. They have marquee instruments that are among the most liquid exchange-traded funds in the world, ranging in a whole bunch of different investment strategies, treasuries, precious metals, et cetera. Their instruments already trade and are are liquid at the millions of dollars a day, tens of millions of dollars a day in terms of liquidity. We're issuing classes of those and um, those tokens then trade on tokenized markets and will trade on tokenized markets. What you're holding is actually the underlying basket 
And so what's different about these is they have a strong and robust pricing signal. So you know exactly what that token's worth. You can look on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange and see the price of, of that token if you don't believe it. And um, in fact, well, I don't want to go into all of the details of uh, what we're doing behind the scenes is some of this remains proprietary, but you have a strongly priced, highly liquid instrument in the blockchain space. Bitcoin is not, you know, again, I love Bitcoin. So this is not either or, but the existing crypto instruments don't have the market depth that these instruments have. And so you don't have a place if you're an institution to park your money in the blockchain space. What this is introducing is a mechanism where you can park your value, again, in things that have an investment thesis, and from there, interact with other assets in the space. So it's the lack of a foundation in the blockchain space where institutions can park their value in order to engage in market making or other trading that has prevented real liquidity from forming in the, in the security token space. Well, I would and say we even can, what's, what's more exciting for me is the concept of fractional ownership of those underlying units. I mean, you're starting to see that emerge as basically enabled by custodians in the US and a couple around the world, where you can literally buy a unit of, or you can buy a partial unit of a security without having to worry about a minimum entry point, right? So if the stuff is trading at a hundred bucks, you don't need a hundred bucks to buy, you can buy a fractional amount of that. What you're talking about is moving that fractionalization out of the custodial arena and into the actual issuance arena, which makes it far more democratized, right? That, you know, you that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of custodians that are well, well ahead on this. And, you know, the big sort of kind of what's going on in the U.S. now is a push towards the ability to do um, direct indexing on, on accounts that are large enough, right? That is something that's, again, being enabled by the custodians. Now, theoretically, if you can put every S&P 500 stock on a token chain like what you've done now, then you no longer, that custodian... No custodian needs to build out those systems anymore. They just need to basically buy the security traded on the tokenized exchange. So uh, very exciting <laughs> for, for people like me who get into these things, but also yeah. very powerful as a means of, of democratizing access to such a solution. Yeah, and unlocking innovation. So this is one of the center point, central themes that, that we're looking into here, which is as decentralized as possible. Mm -hmm. So what we're bringing to the everyday wallets is you can download your MyEther wallet or a MetaMask wallet and begin interacting with these units of value. We have a process by which you can register those wallets through a broker product, and that makes you eligible to hold and trade and transfer these, these units of value. But you're not centralizing the actual wallet creator. It unlocks all sorts of possibilities in terms of the way that you use this value. Again, as long as that value is being used between known and qualified parties, you can open up all sorts of new models. Now, what's exciting is the security space has no utility. I can't use my shares of Apple for things, for payments, for other mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. as a practical matter. That's interesting. This brings the, the concept of utility to the space. And the flip side is the blockchain space previously had no investment thesis. So as a practical matter, it's not representing yield. You can't hedge against volatility practically. And so this is really bringing those kinds of models into the blockchain space. So we think it's all coming together in a very powerful way going forward. But what you're going to see is just a complete unlocking of new ways to interact with value. Um, through this framework. That's interesting. So, I mean, you're talking about the ability to potentially tie my, my securities portfolio to my payment system. And every time I swipe my card, maybe I reduce the, I reduce the value of my portfolio as opposed to uh, as opposed to my bank account. Now, of course, that's not for everybody because that sort of risk profile is um, <laughs> the thing that uh, 
planners like myself detract people from doing, but for those who are willing to roll the dice on it, there you go. Knock yourself out. Well, again, another thing that, that must be absolutely crystal clear to folks is there's a reason for disclosures. There's a reason mm-hmm. for the industry and the behavior of the industry as it stands right now. So that is an asset manager is expected to do certain things to demonstrate a certain amount of trustworthiness to the regulators so that when an investor is holding that unit of value in any form, they know what they have. And mm-hmm. it is not being art- manipulated in a way that can't be, at least there's always an accountable party. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, in the history of finance, there haven't been people who manipulate things. Of course they do. But there's mechanisms by which those people can be held accountable um, in the background. So, so it also sounds like based on what you've done, um, you've almost, you've disaggregated the need for an exchange altogether too, right? Because if you're, if the rule sets are in there for who qualifies as a trusted agent to transact in these things, right? The securities dealers, which could limit the access to soy themselves, almost form the equivalent of an over-the-counter market again by dealing with each other without a central location because, well, it's decentralized altogether, thereby hopefully reducing overhead costs. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's not quite, um, but okay. it's, it's close. That is the direction we're headed here, mm-hmm. but there's a couple of steps in order to get there. Now, first, liquidity pools are hard to come by. They don't just mm-hmm. come up here overnight, that's for sure. So that's right. And, and in fact, people go to places for a market to form, people are going there to perform functions. So let's not discount the importance of venues in helping to sustain liquidity. However, the concept of walled garden venues, we think will fall in the end. And we do see, this is a question for the, the regulators in the end, and one that I think is a longer walk with the regulators. But if I'm able to enforce the rule, the, the principal purpose of a venue is to have a regulatory framework under which exchange activity occurs. If you can create a effectively venue-less boundary for rules and enforcement of rules, do you really need to have a central location under which exchange takes place? So yeah, this goes back to what the purpose of these places was in the first place, was just A, to create a gathering place, which we can now do on a disaggregated basis, and B, to create protection around terms and regulations surrounding parties that are participating in said markets. So if we can do that built into the actual currency or into the, into the, into the actual security itself, then why do we need to go to fixed locations? Exactly right. That's what we're pressing for, and as we're working with regulators globally, it, it's the, the concept there that decentralized. The boundary is only formed by the qualifications of the users and the instruments that they're trading and whether or not there's a match. That's as long as you can demonstrate that that's true and there's no market manipulation, we think it's all decentralized. So we're, we're hopeful that that happens in the end because then you get liquidity in a whole nother form. And so we're excited to get there. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's, it's a market expanding concept. It's, it's, I'm sure no doubt that we have a number of listeners kind of scratching their heads about some of the stuff we're talking about, but this is a massively market expanding opportunity that hopefully reduces overhead significantly. And, you know, already talked about one or two things where it basically expands the, you know, the access to these types of, to any type of solution, right? I mean, one yeah, of the things yeah. you mentioned previously, just briefly was securitization of real estate, which I've talked about previously about how it's kind of ridiculous that if I want to access equity within my home, I have two choices. I either sell the entire thing or I basically get debt against it, right? Like I would love to be able to maybe sell 5% of it to access capital and then have the option of buying that back later on at market price, right? We can do that if a publicly traded corporation has that option. An individual with a home does not. Yeah, this is an example of the kind of utility that just isn't possible in the uh, legacy marketplace where home ownership is, a, is one of those 
things that's, that is an antiquated model. You start to see pressure against that model with the WeWorks of the world where it's easy to get usership rights for commercial real estate. But for home ownership, there is, you could argue that Airbnb allows for the beginning of usership. But in demand. the end, you have this false disparity between the owner and the tenant mm-hmm. where they're not, their interests are not aligned. And you can, if the user can also have ownership rights, you create a new kind of model called usership, which is if I improve the equity, so in in the existing model, as a tenant, you have no interest in improving the value of the underlying property. You don't gain anything from it. And so as a result, when you depreciate the property, why not? Um, You don't lose anything. And of course, that pits you against the owner and the owner's interest. But if you can create a model where you participate in the upside of any value as increase that you create as you use, it creates a new framework for the practical use of the real estate. So if I want to go set up my company in San Francisco, I got to sell everything to move there. And, you know, it's a a startup world and I don't know that we're going to make it there. It's a massive transaction for me to go and change ownership rights and everything in that space. If I rent, I'm basically handing someone else the equity. So we think as an example of a new kind of model that comes from the security token world, you'll see this usership uh, go in between. It's just one example. There's a gazillion of these. So we will see a radically different mark 10 to 15 years from now, a radically different kind of, of marketplace, one in which currencies and securities units of value can be efficiently moved. People have a range of options in terms of where they want to park their value, where they can trade off freely on risk and yield, where securities transactions, the back office fees and the friction associated with securities transactions is utterly obliterated. So you can move freely um, between these dimensions. Again, we're, we're hitting another theme. One of the common themes that we talk about on this podcast is a reduction of friction within finance. And, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're right on that. And I think the ability to bake in compliance into the actual token is just as brilliant. So a couple of questions for you. Who are you working with currently? You mentioned Wisdom Tree, and that to me is a natural market fit there. What other verticals or what other examples of companies that have shown interest or that you're currently engaged with do you have to share with us? Yeah, I'm not going to go into specific names. We have some really interesting banking relationships that are that are shaping up. I'll give you a fintech provider, Cascade Fintech, in the payment space. They do really cool work in wearables, among other things. And so as we begin to move into a utility space for securities, that's a really important relationship for us. There's some institutional players that are that are heating up for us as, as well. I'm going to say I'll say this in terms of general categories. There's a lot of interest um, from broker dealers to mm-hmm. work in this space because they want to see their, especially with respect to mid market broker dealers, mm-hmm. they don't have real efficiency in back office functions. No, and so they're being there's a lot crushed of by the ever increasing compliance burden that they're being pl- being placed upon them. So that exactly. makes a lot of sense. So in this case, what we're doing is basically handling those things at scale for them so that they can focus on their real specialty, which is distribution and deal flow. So by offloading and allowing them to focus on this piece, you can make mid-market much more efficient and effective. So those type of relationships that are developing for us, there's a lot, just almost an infinite supply of issuers. We've been very careful about our choice of uh, issuances as we want you know, I think it's very important for the space to be driven by credibility and really credible instruments with a, with a credible investment thesis. And what you've seen in the early days of the security token industry is kinds of things that have been tokenized are the kinds of things that couldn't raise capital through other channels. 
So it's almost, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy then that you're going to get bad things that aren't going to be liquid. However, we see some really interesting models, for example, in project finance, energy project finance, among other things, where you get basically got a repeat template that you want to you know, finance this solar panel installation that investors can come in and get those on a click the stamp, issue the new offering, click the next stamp with slightly different parameters and issue another offering. It's those models that are very suited, which have great investment pieces and are very suited to, to this new framework. And again, it's an emphasis on income in those models. And that's, that's where we like to, to focus our energy. Before we wrap up, there's uh, three questions I ask everybody. The first one is, if you had one wish for something to change in either your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? And I should have studied your questions. With no, people. no. I like to blindside um, people with these. <laughs> so, let's see. Within our company, I wish I knew then when I started what I know now. That's probably an obvious one. Within the industry, I'd like to see a better sense of partnership. There's a lot of players who are um, somewhat cutthroat within the industry. And I think this is a big enough pie that we all need to come together in these frameworks and not think that any one of us needs to own everything. So that's a call out to uh, my fellow security token industry brethren, that let's, uh, let's do this thing together. Yeah, I, mean, I kind of understand that attitude because I mean, hey, it would be great if we were all on the exact same platform, right? Which just leads you all to think it's a massive land grab and then therefore there will there can be only one. For, oh God, never quoted Highlander <laughs> before in this show, but I just did it now. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Congratulations, actually. That's, that's, <laughs> I'm with you on Highlander. There you um, go. You're going to start cutting each other's heads off. That's exactly but, how it's going to go down. <laughs> look, the monopoly... The monopoly model is the enemy of innovation in the end. There can't be only one. And it's the same thing's true for ledgers, frankly. There won't be, there shouldn't be only one ledger technology. But if there ever is, it'll mean the end of innovation. So um, there can be many, but what we need to do is cooperate together so that we can get to the critical mass that the industry demands. And it's interesting that, that, you know, people, I mean, I totally understand the desire to see it that the world that way, but I mean, that's not the world we live in anymore. The world we live in is one of interoperability and being able Hmm. to move data between different silos or sources or different stacks of code. Right. I mean, I've already had a guest on building blockchains to enable blockchains to communicate to each other. And just, you know, anyone who's familiar with the world of APIs, you want a to talk to B at all times. Right. So that's how we keep it alive. And that's why there's room enough for all of you. So uh, I love it. I love, that philosophically, yes. we've, we've emphasized interoperability. So it was, we've spent a lot of time on compliance, but not on interoperability. So I, I'll just leave it at this. Never truer words have been said. Interoperability is a fundamental value. Um, again, it's one that's, that VCs don't easily respond to. So in other words, when you say that my company emphasizes agility as a core principle, they say, well, how's that getting new customers for you? It does over time because you can adapt to the problems that they have. You can meet them where they are. But frankly, I've uh, been disappointed in, in the BC experience precisely because some of these more esoteric principles that are important to sustain business operations don't sell well in the short I kind of get it from their, their, their point of view, right? Like, yeah, they're, you know, look at the big players. They're almost winner take all markets. And there's an argument to be made that in the digital realm, especially in the digital consumer realm, there is basically room towards a grand total of one to two players. I mean, even Jack Welsh said back in the day, you want to be number one or number two because that's where the pricing power of everybody else suffers. And, you know, we're seeing consolidation or aggregate or to just quote Ben Thompson, aggregation taking place all around the internet with only one to two or three players capturing the outsized disproportionate amount of market share. So yeah, I my brother, 
Uh, listen, Jason, that's maybe again, it's an important point that in order to consolidate, in order mm -hmm. to aggregate, you must be interoperable. So that's for folks thing, yeah. who are not, who are built in a vertical stack, that's exactly what folks are running into now in terms of their ability to come together. When you have a tightly vertical stack that doesn't easily integrate, it makes consolidation very hard. And then scale becomes a, a, a very difficult challenge. There's a, this isn't my, my original quote, but let me see if I can uh, paraphrase this. There's two types of companies. Those who built to scale and those who don't scale. So I guess it's the same way. Those who are built to consolidate and those who don't consolidate. Yep, I agree. Second question for him. What's been the biggest challenge in getting to where you are to date with the company? I think that was a theme that I've sort of laid out all along. It was being ahead of our time. So we saw the core issues in terms of compliance in the space and took on the core challenge. What we found was it was so far ahead of its time that people who provide capital didn't respond to those messages. That's changed now dramatically for us. Folks see that we were prescient, but that's after the fact. So we had to get into a, a low key, grind it out, tech focused, keep your head down type of model that frankly took a whole lot of discipline. I think it's paying off now, but it's, it's funny. We're probably older than most of the well-known crypto players in the space. Our technology is much more advanced than, as far as we know, any of the other players, but most people don't know who we are, precisely because we came into the market so early with, with such a big vision that people didn't, didn't see why it was important, for example, as I mentioned, to take compliance seriously or to take interoperability seriously. Now, if you said to someone in 2017, you, know, you like Ethereum, but you think there are other good ledgers out there, people thought you were a heathen. And now it's turning out to be, we still like Ethereum, I think it's a great ledger, but there are other ledgers who have other benefit. And um, so there is, a, there is a swarm mentality, that's a herd mentality that's out there um, within the space where folks are not seeing the big picture. And that's been a disadvantage for us. Yeah, well, when you spend your day trading only certain secure, only certain tokens, you know, you got a vested interest. Like, there's an, yeah, we can talk about how the endowment effect probably very much in, implemented their views on which cryptocurrencies were were it. Right, it's whatever they put their money into that they basically fully believed in. Anyway, that's beside the point. So uh, let's move on. Last question for you is: What excites you the most about what it is you're working on? What keeps you basically going every day? struggling for four years to get to where you are today and continue on the good fight. I'll tell you, frankly, this brings sophisticated. So I'm standing right now in New York City, but I came from the UAE. So last week I was in the UAE, then Romania before that, and you know, another financial center in London and Ukraine before that. It doesn't matter where you are. You can access sophisticated financial services in this new world that were previously only accessible in the world's financial centers. And that leads to a tremendous amount of fairness. So in, in certain parts of the world, access to low-cost capital, it's impossible. There is no yeah. such thing as low-cost capital. And as a result, and I've seen this firsthand, there's terrible exploitation out of the edge. This is a problem mm -hmm. that humanity's really struggled to fix. And we see that aid efforts, oftentimes the money ends up funneling through the exploiters to get down to folks. Mm -hmm. In this new world where everyone has access, fair access to capital, which we believe is going to be possible as we drive, it changes everything. And that excites me. I've seen the, the bad things that happen at the uh, edge of the world, and we think we can fix that.
in a way that hasn't been possible previously in society. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this was been, you know, normally the compliance conversations are necessarily going to be the most interesting ones, but this one, uh, this one definitely touched upon a lot of very innovative little things you're doing that that have a lot of potential. So keep it up. Yeah, Jason, thanks for helping us get the word out, and uh, I look forward to. Any, if you have any follow up or want to do this again, I'm always game. Well, keep me posted as things develop. So, <laughs> thanks. You bet. See ya. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Danacy Currency, and this may have gotten a little bit heavy at certain points, but I hope you took the time to appreciate what was being said here, because of all the crazy hype we saw over blockchain, you know, this is one of the companies that seems to be looking to deliver on the promise of what this revolutionary technology can actually deliver. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.